Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Center Presbyterian Church. We are very happy to have you joining with us in person. And also, we want to say hello to everyone who's joining us online this morning. It's good to have you here. It is the second week of Advent, and this week we are lighting the uh, peace candle, I believe. Um, and so I want to invite our family up to light that for us. The first week of Advent, we lit the hope candle in recognition of the hope we have in Christ. This week, we light the peace candle. Peace is hard to find in our hectic lives. We juggle so many responsibilities and stresses that we often feel hurried and spread thin. It is, it is not just we who are in need of peace. When we look beyond our immediate circumstances and consider the world at large, we see injustice, division, and even war. In the midst of this turmoil, we remember that Christ's birth brought with it a declaration of peace. In Luke 2, we are told, suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with an angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. As we light the second Advent candle, we rejoice that through his atoning death on the cross, Christ has brought us peace we truly need, peace with God. Isaiah chapter 11 speaks of this eternal peace that Jesus has come to bring. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. The wolf will, lie, will live with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together, and the little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, and the young will lie down together and a lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Let's pray. Father, thank you for bringing us here to worship you, and we thank you that you have brought us peace. Thank you that we know that because of Christ's work, we can come into your presence this morning and worship a God who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, who delights in welcoming us, in forgiving us, in healing us. Lord, thank you that we come to you this morning with no fear, but only joy in our hearts, knowing that you long to receive your children. Father, we pray that you'd bless our worship Bless the songs we sing, the liturgy we recite, and bless especially the preaching of your word that it might strike our hearts this morning. Teach us who you are today, we pray. The way you taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This morning as we read the word of God, I, I want to thank you for our time away this past week. I do want to remind you last week you heard a very powerful sermon concerning God's word and more importantly, its place in our life as we begin to think about leading a life that is pleasing to God. And so as you and I begin to think about all that we're reading in the New Testament and the Old Testament, Jesus said something that really was quite amazing. He said, humanity shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Every word. And so as you and I begin to think through and we begin to struggle with that concept, it becomes important that as we dig into chapter 9 of Nehemiah this morning, and we begin to unearth its truth for us, that we have spent a lot of time in seeing how God's Word, particularly chapter 8, impacted the lives of the people. I want to make sure this is not rubbing against something. Thank you, John. How the Word of God impacted the people as they once again feasted upon what God had done for them as a, as a people called out of the world to believe in Him, to follow Him, and to trust Him. And so this morning as we read from chapter 9, we're picking up from where they have been feasting and celebrating and taking time to hear the Word of God. And as I, I was listening to this being preached, I thought to myself, how strange it would be for especially you teenagers, for those of you who are in such a rush day by day to sit half a day and listen to the Bible read. Could you do that? Sit for half a day to listen to God's Word being read. I, I dare say that most people can't sit 30 seconds. And so as we approach the scriptures this morning, John, if you'd help me with that, and we begin to look at chapter 9, we're picking up now with a more somber note in the story of the reclaiming of God's promises in Nehemiah. I want you to invite you to hear the word of God. And so on the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads. Those of the Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent, an, and spent another day or another quarter in confessing and in worshiping the Lord their God. Standing on the stairs were the Levites, Jeshua, Benai, Kadmiel, Shibani, Bunai, Serebani, Benai, and Kenani, who called with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Benai, Hashabnia, Sharibna, Hodai, and Shebenahani and Pehathahai, that's easy for you to say, said, stand up 
and praise the Lord your God who is from everlasting to everlasting. And then they continued. Blessed be you or your glorious name and, and may it be exalted above all blessings and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. You are the, the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you, and you made a covenant with him to give to his descendants in the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Girgashites. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. You saw the suffering of your forefathers in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent miraculous, miraculous signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and all the people of this land. For you, you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself, which remains to this day, you divided the seas before them so that they passed through it on dry ground. But you hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into mighty waters. And by day you led them with a pillar of cloud and by night a pillar of fire to give them light on the way they were to take. You came down on, the Mount, on Mount Sinai and you spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws that are just and right and decrees and commands that are good. You made, you made known to them your holy Sabbath and gave them commands, decrees, and laws through your servant Moses. And in their hunger, you gave them bread from, from heaven and in their thirst you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and take possession of the land that you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. But they, our fathers, became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miraculous or the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a, a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you, you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore you did not desert them even when they cast for your themselves an image of, of a calf and, and said, This is your God who brought you out of Egypt. And when they committed an awful and when they committed awful blasphemies. So because of your great compassion 
You did not abandon them in the desert. By day, a pillar of cloud did not cease to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on their way they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You, you did not withhold your manna from their mouths. You gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the desert. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. You gave them kingdoms and nations and allotted to them even the remotest frontiers. They took over the country of Sihun, of king of Heshbon, and the country of, the, of Og, king of Bashan. And you made their sons as numerous as the stars in the sky, and you brought them into the land that you told their fathers to enter and possess. And their sons went in and took possessions of the land. You subdued before them the Canaanites who lived in the land. You, you handed the Canaanites over to them along with their kings and their peoples of the land to deal with them as they pleased. They captured fortified cities and fertile land. They took possession of houses filled with all kinds of good things, wells already dug, vineyards, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. And they ate to the full and were well nourished. They re reveal, reveled in your great goodness but they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They put your law behind their backs. They killed your prophets who had admonished them in order to turn them back to you. They committed an awful blasphemy. So you handed them over to their enemies who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you. From heaven, you heard them. And in your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hand of their enemies. But as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven and you had compassion. You delivered them time after time. You warned them to return to you, your law, but they became arrogant and disobe disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances by which a man will live if he obeys them. Stubbornly they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked and refused to listen. For many years you were patient with them, but your spirit, and by your spirit you admonished them through your prophets. Yet they paid no attention. So you handed them over to the neighboring peoples. But in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, O oh, our God, the great and mighty and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love, 
Do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. The hardship that has come upon us, upon our kings, upon our leaders, upon our priests and prophets, upon our fathers and all your people from the day of the kings of Assyria until today, in all that has happened to us, you have been just. You have acted faithfully while we did wrong. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our fathers did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the warnings you gave them. Even while they were in their kingdom and enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land that you gave them, they did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. But see, we are slaves today, slaves in the land you gave our forefathers so they could eat its fruit and other good things it produces. And because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. And they rule over our bodies and over our cattle as they please. And we, we are in great distress. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, as we bow before you and we take this chapter, when we hear this lamenting of the people of their sins, we are reminded that as we approach this season of Advent, that peace with God begins when we face God with what he is, which is truth. This is why in the gospel you say the light came into the world and the world did not know him. And yet to those who receive him, to those who call upon his name, he gives them the right or you give them the right to be called the children of God. And so we come in faith, believing your word, asking humbly, O God, that you would speak to us again of eternal things. And that by your great power, by your great might, you, O oh God, would lead us in understanding how the confession of your people hundreds of years ago leads us in living our lives this day. We ask and we pray in the name of Christ our Lord and the people of God said together, I know I'm probably going to date myself. I'm probably going to confuse some of you who were born probably after the year, mm, gosh, probably after the year 1970. But when I was growing up, there was a program on TV called To Tell the Truth. And it was a program that basically was a game show that where uh, these three individuals came and appeared before celebrities of the day who were given the task as judges to figure out which of the three was actually uh, uh, the person being presented. The, the game show started with the host introducing the panel who would be the judges and then introducing the three who would proposedly be one of the people that they need to discover. For instance, the person would be Robert Howard and the host would introduce Robert Howard and say, well, he's the pastor of Center Church. He grew up in Darlington, South Carolina, and he's pretty much not known for much at all. 
And then the panel would be given the opportunity to ask questions to each of the three to determine which one of the three was Robert Howard. Well, that was the real tongue twister of it all. That was the excitement of the game, was as each celebrity would ask one of the individuals certain questions, they would have to determine whether the contestants were telling the truth and that they were Robert Howard or whether they were lying and they were imposters. And so at the end of the, end of the program, the judges would then secretly on a piece of paper write out whether it was number one, number two, or number three that was really Robert Howard. And as they would close the show, they would ask the judges, well, which do you think it is? And the first celebrity would say, well, I think it's number one. And the second one would say, well, I think it's number three. And the third might say, well, I think it's number one, and I agree with the first person. And the program would close with, say, with the real Robert Howard, please stand up. And they all, all, all three contestants, would begin to look like they were going to stand until finally one would stand and everyone would go, <gasps> and it was only revealed at that point how good of a liar the other two were and how good of a, a game show it really was. Well, I dare say that truth is something that you and I desperately crave in our day. We crave it because we are lacking truth in our day. We have come to a point as American citizens where we no longer trust our government, our judges, even our electoral system. We are at a point where we are asking ourselves where can we find truth because we turn on our TVs to hear news that we hope would give us the full story of what has happened, but even then we are left wanting because we are wanting the truth. And so as we enter this season of Christmas and we think for peace that Christ came into the world, we, we are suddenly overwhelmed with the reality that the world is not filled with peace because there is no truth that the world is a dark place and that men and women who live in the world are indeed in darkness and they need the light of God in order to have that truth. Why? Because God is the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so when you and I begin to wrestle with this whole business of how we as Christians who live in a dark world claim truth or find truth for ourselves, chapter 9 of Nehemiah becomes very powerful because it leads us into something the world resists and it is the reason the world doesn't have peace. And that is it leads us into confession, which is telling the truth. And so as we go through this passage this morning, if you'll open your Bibles, I really want to show you. I want to show you from the Scriptures, not from a PowerPoint. I want to show you from the Scriptures how you can have peace in your days in the midst of a world darkened by confusion. And I want to show you very three, three things about God that you worship this morning that can truly give you peace this morning and make this Christmas filled with joy. I'm getting a little ringing in the, in the microphone, so if anyone could help with that, I'd appreciate it. The importance of this more than anything else is that I want you to understand how God wants you to be at peace in the midst of the darkness that we are living in. 
And you'll see this when you look at the passage because I'm, a, I'm really going to deal with it from three different uh, criteria. First, you're going to see in, in verse 6 through 15 that God is first remind, we are reminded that God is the one who created and saves us as his people. That God is the creator and savior. That secondly, that God is a God who is generous and patient. If you look at verses 16 through 25, that God is generous and patient. And then if you look at verses 26 through 31, that God is a God who warns and disciplines those he loves. Well, let's unpack that. And I want you to, to understand this passage so clearly that when you leave here, you can leave knowing the truth of God and who the God is that you worship, and how who, who you worship is for you. He's not against you. He loves you. He desperately desires for you to walk in the truth of life. The passage begins, verse 1 through 5, with that setting. The setting is really quite powerful because it leads us in understanding why they've gathered you see, they have taken time to read God's word. And let me tell you, this is the reason God requires us as Christians to turn and open the scriptures and read his word. Because Jesus said his word is life. And so if you cut yourself off from the word of God, you cut yourself off from the source of life, the, the power to live in days we have today. And so that whole first five verses deals with the fact that they are gathering with, a, with an expectation that they have not fulfilled what God has taught them to, to do. They come with sackcloth and ashes. And for those of you who, who like Glamour magazine, you're not going to find that kind of look on those pages. Uh, it, it literally was uh, putting on a, uh, like a croaker sack. It was putting on the most dismal, unattractive kind of garment, signifying poverty and impoverishment. And more than that, to show the overwhelming grief of their heart, they would throw dust in the air, and that dust and the ash would gather all around them. They'd look like, well, uh, we're going to be celebrating a Charlie Brown Christmas. You remember the, you remember the cartoon image? Pigpen, remember him? That's that's on akin to what it looked like. That that basically they were walking around worshiping God, and they were covered with dust that literally fell off their bodies, ash that literally that literally filthied their face. And as they did that, they did that because of what was in their heart. What was in their heart? They were cut to the core to the grief that they had been reading God's word and they had been recounting the history of their people and the promises of God and they realize that the situation of their life, the place that they're living came not about by chance or by, by happenstance, it came because their parents and their parents before them and they themselves had not honored God's word they had simply lived the way they wanted to, any way they wanted to, and they were living a lie. And so now as they're approaching God, as they're coming before him, as they're beginning to understand what God is requiring of them, they are cut to the heart with grief. And it is there they begin to reclaim God's promises for their life. Isn't this glorious? 
it, it reminds me of the gospel in the Old Testament. So many people read the Bible of the Old Testament and they think, oh, I can't read that. God is so vicious. He's so mean. He's so cruel. Let me tell you, that's not the God of the Old Testament. Please notice that the first thing that they are led in remembering is how God is the one who created everything, but he did not create sin. When God created the world in all its order, he created it in such a way that it would, it would be fashioned and formed to glorify him in carrying out its purpose of creation. It would keep its order. It would follow his word. It would main be maintained by his power. And out of that great creation, God created humanity, man and woman, he created them. Notice that? That he gave gender to humanity that it wasn't fluid, that when God created us as a human being, he created us with specificity and purpose. And yet we know what happened, don't we? That in the midst of that creation, Adam and Eve were given a choice as to whether they would worship God and love him and obey him or whether they would not. And the results of their choice, which was not to obey God, was to be plunged into the darkness of sin. By the way, I love the Westminster Catechism question when it asks you, what is sin? Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. And you're probably looking at me going, what? Let me put it in more simply terms. Sin is not want not wanting what God, what God wants. Do you hear that? Sin is not wanting what God wants. And sin is wanting what God does not want. And so for that reason, because of the fall and because of what happened after the creation, this God who created everything to glorify his name, to reflect him and all who he is, he realized that he would have to intervene in this catastrophe, this crisis, this overwhelming marring of his creation. And he called Abram, which meant father, and said, I'm going to name you Abraham, which means father of many nations, and I'm going to call you, and I'm going to, through you, bless you, so that you will be a blessing, so that through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. In other words, whatever God was going to do in the, taking care of the mess that had happened in the fall of creation, God was going to do through the lineage of Abraham. And so the Jews are remembering that this is the reason they were a special people, that God was calling them to represent him in the world and that through them, God was going to do something to bring about reconciliation and to remove the stain of sin from humanity. I love verse 9 through 15, that God alone is the Lord. He's the Savior. How so? He sees the suffering of his people caused by their sins. He sends miraculous and wonders against Pharaoh who enslaved them. He, he takes a name for himself. He makes a name for himself by doing things no one has ever seen, like parting the Red Sea and leading his people through it on dry ground and then annihilating the most powerful army of that day by allowing the flood to overwhelm these Egyptian armies. 
God goes on and does even more splendid things. He begins to speak to his people, giving them regulations and laws from Mount Sinai, where he explains to them why their lives are in such dismal array because they don't have the word of God. They don't know the word of God. They don't have an understanding of what sin really is. And so God gives them their, his law. Paul reminds us in Romans that the law was given not to save us, but to expose what it is that we do that causes the problems of life and how we transgress God's will. And then even God supplied their daily needs by giving them bread from heaven and water from the rock. And throughout it all, as God is seen as our Savior, our Creator, He is the one who also, the one who keeps His promise. Isn't that beautiful? That God who loves us, who created us, who made us for Himself, who calls us out of the darkness of the world to believe and to turn and trust in His Word is the one who promises to save. The second characterization of God found in verses 16 through 25 is that God is generous and patient. Now I want you to know I am not generous and patient. And if you have someone who you're sitting beside who thinks they are, tell them they're not right now. Because when you define generous and patient in the way the Bible defines it in these passages, there is none of us that would have put up with it. You see, these people who God had called to be His people and to represent His name on the face of the earth and through them to bring salvation to all the nations, this God had to put up with things that you and I wouldn't tolerate. What do you mean? Well, I mean simply this. He saw these people who became His people by name become arrogant and stiff-necked. What do you mean? Well, they became arrogant because they refused to listen and they failed to remember how God had rescued them from the enslavement of Egypt. In other words, their arrogance, their way of thinking, led them to think, well, you know, that was then, this is now. God did that back then, but now we're on our own and we can do pretty much whatever we want. That's arrogance. Kind of reminds me of a couple that decides to get married and they go down the aisle and they give wedding vows to one another and to God, and then they leave, and then they, they go on their life happily and merrily as husband and wife, and then until one day one person wakes up and says, you know, I'm really tired of being married. I think I'll just live however I want to. That's arrogance. What do you mean it's arrogance? It's forgetting the vows that you've made, the promises you've given. You see, that, that kind of arrogance destroys and so these people became arrogant, and even worse, they became stiff-necked. I don't know if you've ever had a stiff neck. It's not very pleasant. As you get older, stiff necks become part of the, the recourse of growing older. And I want you to know, I wish my neck was not stiff. But it's not talking about that kind of freezing of the vertebra in the neck that is being referenced here. It's, it's a way of saying, I'm not going to bend my head I am not going to yield to what I know is right. To be stiff-necked is to be rebellious in the heart. And when these people 
were dissatisfied with the way that God had led them to live, they simply said, well, we'll just appoint new leaders to lead us in the way we want to go. And that life would be back to slavery. Isn't that interesting? As they were walking with the one true God who would give them life, they didn't want it. They wanted to go back to the lie. And yet God was generous and patient. He let them have what they wanted. And when they got what they wanted and saw how miserable they really were, they cried out to God and God would save them. It didn't happen once. It didn't happen twice. If you go back and read the book of Judges, it happened Gosh, it was a cycle that just almost never quit. And yet God, in the midst of that cycle that had become a habit for them, God had become merciful, generous, and patient. He kept meeting their needs. He made sure they lacked nothing. He allowed them to continue to feast upon the good things of life. Until finally in verse 26 through 31, we find that God is not only a God who is our creator and savior, that he is also generous and patient with us. God is also a God who warns and disciplines his, his people. Let me tell you, if you are a parent and you don't discipline your child, you don't love your child. If you're an employer and you don't put up boundaries for the people who work for you so that they understand the rules and what the rules of the company are, you're not, you're not loving your employees. God loves his people. God loves you. And because he loves you, he reveals to us that he warns us about the things that we might be tempted to follow, which are lies. And he will discipline. If you notice in chapter 9, verse 32 through, excuse me, verse 26 through 31, it deals with that way in which God deals with the struggle that you and I have in our hearts, much less the people of old. It's that rhythm where we, where we go through our daily lives and we may fall into a sin we begin to decline in that way of our relationship with God. And then we get to a place where we realize we are not happy, things not going well, that our life has become a mess. And we turn to God and we say, God, help us. And it is in those moments where God, who is compassionate, allows us to taste the bitterness of our sins so that we might understand how bitter why life can really be without him in order to bring us back to himself. And it is that truth that the people who worshipped in sackcloth and ashes had come to visibly 
and experientially understand. Because as they worshipped and talked about the sins of their fathers and those who came before them and how they didn't live up to what God had said, they turned the phrase in such a way that you almost don't know it, that God has been just in how he has dealt with his people. God has been righteous. God has been gracious. God has been patient. And we stand before him today not because God is unfair, but because he's very fair and just. Notice in verses 39 through 37, they say, do not let this hardship we've gone through seem trifling in your eyes. You know what the word trifling means? Minor, petty. The people are looking to God and saying, God, we want you to understand the suffering we've experienced, we don't see as something that's just a blimp on the screen. We understand what really has happened. We get it. We understand that we are in the situation we are today because we made choices that have led us away from you, not towards you. And we know, we understand. We are living the consequences of those choices in such measure that we do not want to continue to live in this way. Haven't you ever felt that in your heart? We've known the hardship that has come upon us, upon our kings, our priests, our ancestors, our people, even up to the very point that we were carried into exile. We understand, God, we get it. And then the question comes, is there any hope? Is there any hope of peace? And the glorious answer is yes. Because God is forgiving. And it is there in verse 37 where they cry out, we are in great distress, that they find the relief of that distress in the forgiveness of God. I don't know about you, but I find such great hope in Christmas. Why? Because it is God's answer to the world problem. That begins in John chapter 1 where it says the people lived in darkness and they saw a great light. That light of Christ that is coming into the world that is still at work in the world is the only hope we have as a nation, my friends. And the only way that you and I will ever have peace is when we allow ourselves the freedom to confess our sins and not blame anyone else for them. Can you imagine? I, I was amazed this past week as, as the quarantine of, of all of this pandemic is beginning to rise and people are beginning to worry more and more and how governors have come forward in different states and said, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna take control, we're gonna squash this, we're going to shut down, we're going to really lock down the, the, the state. 
No one's going to eat in any restaurants anymore. We're not going to have outdoor dining. Well, I, I've heard that even one man in New York City was arrested for opening his restaurant. That's how severe governors have been acting toward this. And yet the news has been broken that the very governors who've done this are now eating in, in restaurants and violating their very own directives. And the people are looking at that and going, hypocrisy. I remember one of the governors coming on TV and making excuses. He said, I did wrong, but I had to. Right? That's not confession, guys. That's not what the Bible teaches us about how to have peace. It's not it. The way you have peace with God and with others is when you're willing to tell the truth, the whole truth, so help your God. And as these people did so, they didn't find a God who would cluck his tongue and wave his finger and shame them. They found a God who would forgive them and cleanse them from all unrighteousness. That's what God wants to do for you. He wants you to come to him, tell the truth, and be clean. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God and our Father, we thank you for the sorrow of sin. There is such a difference for being sorry that we got caught. There is a different kind of sorrow that you allow in our lives that is a sorrow that comes when we really see sin for what it is and how destructive we can be in our lives. And it's for that reason we thank you for the gift of Christmas that knowing our condition, you so loved the world that you gave your only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for loving one, even one like me. And the people of God said together,